All right, welcome to episode 61 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Armand Dangor. He's a British classical scholar and classical musician, associate professor of classics at Oxford University, and fellow and tutor in classics at Jesus College in Oxford. His books include The Greeks and the New, Novelty in Ancient Greek Imagination and Experience, and Music, Text, and Culture in Ancient Greece, co-edited with Tom Phillips. And his latest book is Socrates and Love, The Making of a Philosopher. Welcome, Armand. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Thank you, Liam and Eric. And Alan. 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 <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so, Armand, so obviously in the latest book that we're pretty much what we're thinking of and what we're talking about is the revisionist history of Socrates and what his life was like outside of what we know in academic circles and just sort of in academic institutions. So in your research about his life, how come you felt like his, uh, pretty much his, I guess, more mainstream history need to be, needed to be revised? Partly because everything that we know about Socrates relates to his later life. Mm. And given that he was such an important and influential philosopher, one has to ask, how did he get to be that? How did he become such, such an original guy mm-hmm. in his time? So in ancient Athens in the fifth century BC, when he was born, there were philosophical influences, uh, but they weren't the kind of thing that he was doing, which was concentrating on how we should live and what is the good life. Um, the things that led to the kind of philosophy of Epicureanism, which talk about seizing the moment. Uh, but um, th- those sorts of things were not done in the way that Socrates did them. You know, he used a, a specific question and answer method. He was um, very ethically directed in his philosophy. And so the previous philosophers, so-called pre-Socratics, tended to be much more about physical science and the nature of the universe and uh, what the composition of the world is. And um, so here we have this figure who is well known for his later life, well known for being a questioner of ethical matters, what is love, what is truth, what is knowledge, what is justice. And um, we know that he was put to death. You know, one of the important facts about Socrates, the most important fact in some way, is that he was put on trial by the Athenian state, and he was eventually uh, convicted and uh, executed by being made to drink poison, poison hemlock. So that's what everybody tends to focus on. And the reason they tend to focus on it is because the main sources for Socrates' life, Socrates himself wrote nothing, well, nothing substantial. We have a line of verse that he did write, but uh, the main sources for his life are two authors, Plato, who is his philosophical pupil, and the great philosopher of the fourth century BC, um, and um, Xenophon, who was uh, a a general, a soldier, a follower of Socrates. And these two sources between them uh, are um, individuals who were born probably around 425 BC, Now, Socrates was born in 469. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that in 425, when they were born, he was already a late middle-aged man. By the time they got to know him, let's say when they were in their teens, he would have been in his 60s. And he was executed when he was 70. So what kind of a biography could they have created of this man whom they knew and saw executed and decided to 
use their skills, their writing and their advocacy to show that he shouldn't have been executed. He was a good man. He was a thoughtful man. He was a great guy. And so this is what they write about. Socrates, the man they knew. In the course of their quite, you know, quite extensive writings, we find tidbits about Socrates' background. But nobody's ever kind of sewn these tidbits together and then looked at other external um, biographical sources, which we have, but they're very fragmentary and they're in different places, and tried to create a narrative of how the younger Socrates turned into the Socrates that we all know about from Plato's Oedipus. And so that was what I decided to do. And there were various reasons for it. And one of, one of them was completely non-academic. About 15 years ago, I thought, how come a film hasn't been made of Socrates' life? <laughs> and so I strung together some of the elements that we all know about, starting with his trial and execution, and then going to what I then thought was the earliest piece of information we had, which was his appearance as a character, as the main character, in a comic play of 423 BC, um, when he would have been 47. And um, in that play, he appears on the stage, um, and he's, uh, he's swung onto the stage in a basket, suspended on the end of a crane. And he's this kind of slightly disreputable character who's trying, he's setting up a school and trying to teach an old man how to argue his way out of debts that he's incurred. (laughs) And so this was, you know, a a comic take on on who this man was in his 40s. He must have been a disreputable, argumentative kind of guy who could teach you how to argue for the wrong thing and win. So this is what goes on in that play. It's a wonderful comic play. It's hilarious and very clever. And uh, the character of Socrates was clearly a sort of an amalgam of the people called the sophists, who were these sort of experts in argumentation and who taught all kinds of subjects from astronomy to rhetoric and who, you know, who, who majored in the idea that, you know, it's all about how you present an argument. Mm-hmm. Now, Socrates, according to Plato, was not like that at all. Although he was extremely good at conversation and argument, mm-hmm. he didn't do it for its own sake in order to win. He did it for a specific purpose, which was to get to the truth, mm-hmm. to strip away falsehoods and to work out what we should really understand about important subjects, about how to live. This is what Plato and Xenophon present to us about Socrates. Um, and yet... Um, in the course of even their presentations, it's clear that Socrates is a very ambitious and competitive arguer. He's someone who wants to win these arguments. He was an ambitious, competitive individual. And so it made me think that actually he must have been born at a time which allowed him to be educated and allowed him to pursue the kind of ambitious goals that we know that young Athenians of his youth would have been interested in doing. Uh, because you know, one of the biographical facts that we get from Plato is that Socrates' father was a stonemason or a stone worker. Mm-hmm. And this implies to so many people that he must have been a very poor man. Mm-hmm. But 
after the Persian Wars in uh, the 490s and 480s BC, Athens started rebuilding itself. Uh, the apogee of that was Pericles' rebuilding of the Acropolis with all these fantastic buildings, the Parthenon and the Erechtheum and so on. And that started in the 440s. But even before that, stonemasons must have been very much in demand. And so there's no reason to think that a, a stone worker need describe only a very poor artisan. Mm -hmm. And I uh, reckon actually that Socrates' father was probably a very wealthy owner of a uh, stone working operation of some kind. Now, the reason I think that is because Socrates is famous, apart from being a philosopher, is famous for having been a soldier. Mm -hmm. And to be a soldier in ancient Athens, to be a hoplite, as it was called, hoplite means a heavy armed soldier, you have to own and maintain a suit of armor. And that was a very expensive business in ancient Athens. Uh, you had to actually have a property qualification and to be over a certain level, even to be, even to become a soldier in Athens armies, a hoplite soldier, because they had to know that if you were called up to go on campaign, you could supply your own helmet, breastplate, uh, shin protectors, the greaves as they're called, spear, sword and shield. And all of these things had to be bought from specialists. And in fact, there's a wonderful bit in Xenophon where Socrates is talking about what makes a good breastplate and how, you know, too tight a fit is no good and, you know, too, too loose a fit is no good. I mean, so these things were matters of expertise. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a question of saying, oh, well, I'll go and fight. No, you had to have a property qualification and you had to have a suit of armor and maintain it. Because of course, in, a, in the battle, it might get dented or broken or lost, then you'd have to get a new one. And these were major pieces of equipment. Mm. You know, you're talking about you know, thousands of dollars equivalent you'd have to spend on each of these things to maintain or to purchase. Mm. So given that Socrates was well known and is known from Plato, the Symposium of Plato talks about him on campaign and mentions three specific campaigns in, um, in 432, in 422, and in 424. I mean, you know, these are historical events and, and Socrates was fighting in all of them. Mm -hmm. And given that that was the case, although the earliest campaign mentioned is one in 432 BC when Socrates would already have been, um, would have been uh, 37, 38, uh, we also know that you became a hoplite soldier when you were a late teen, teenager, and you then served on the frontiers of Attica, that's the territory of Athens for a couple of years, before you went into active service at the age of 20. So I think we can push back Socrates' active service to the age of 20, in which case we're talking about 449 BC, a period where Nobody thought we knew anything about Socrates. But one thing we surely must know is if he was a hoplite later in life, he was a hoplite at the age of 20. So and that also means that at the age of 20, he had sufficient wealth, he'd inherited sufficient property qualification to allow him to become a hoplite, which then takes us back again to his father, this stonemason, probably a wealthy man who gave his son an education. And wow, how educated Socrates is. You only have to read any dialogue of Plato to realize that this man knows a hell of a lot. He knows about mathematics. He gives a beautiful demonstration of the square and the hypotenuse. 
in um, one of Plato's dialogues, the Meno. Uh, he talks about ancient music, at, you know, which is quite a complicated subject uh, in, in the Republic. Um, he talks about all kinds of subjects, medicine and, and husbandry and farming and so on in all these other dialogues. This is a man who knew a lot. And that kind of knowledge doesn't just emerge in later life. It usually is a result of early education. It gives you the confidence in these dialogues, uh, Socrates is arguing and debating and winning arguments with the cleverest men of the time. These other sophists, people like Protagoras, um, or people like uh, Callicles in the Gorgias, or people like Gorgias, you know, he is talking to clever men and he's on a level with them. Mm. He had to have been an educated man. That education has to go back to his youth. All these things started to add up in my mind. So the idea of a film in which you simply take what we know of Socrates from his 40s on, ending with his death, although that would have a certain amount of drama, what it would do is show a Socrates who'd never changed. Mm. Whereas I think what needed to be shown and was also obviously going to be of dramatic interest was a man who started off on one path, that of a typical Athenian of his age and status, which was wanting to be a soldier wanting to be celebrated in battle and eventually became something very different a hero of the intellect you might say right and it also uh, seems like it's the ultimate tale of individuation where a person sort of splits away from his family and some kind of in an intellectual and obviously in a more psychological um and i guess more developmental sense and where the person pretty much forms his own thinking and his own ideas and says you know what um even though you guys might not necessarily agree with me this is the right way to kind of see things I think that's right. He, I think he, uh, he did split away from the family business. I mean, I make certain connections which may be entirely speculative in my book, uh, in which I say that uh, you know, Socrates in one of the dialogues talks about how when boys play truant from their school, they get beaten. I thought, well, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily say that kind of thing unless you'd experienced it. And I thought, well, he probably played truant from the, from the father's uh, stoneworking business, because we know that from an early age, he was interested in philosophical ideas. One of the very earliest bits of evidence we have from a contemporary called Ion, um, a, a contemporary, an older contemporary of Socrates, was that when Socrates was a young man, or a young boy even, when he was young, he went to the island of Samos with Archelaus. Archelaus was an important philosopher, older philosopher of the day, and if that was the case, he was already associated with this older philosopher in his teens, and Archelaus was also in the circle of the leading citizen of Athens, Pericles. So Socrates would have been surely associated with Pericles as well. So uh, we're actually given a very precise date for that association by a pupil of Aristotle called Aristoxenus. And I use these later sources. Aristotle was Plato's pupil and, and Aristoxenus was his pupil. So, okay, that was a couple of generations from Socrates. But nonetheless, Aristoxenus tells us this happened when Socrates was 17. Mm. And he said not only was he in a, uh, did he accompany Archelaus, he was his lover. Mm. Uh -huh. okay. And that's a pretty astonishing thing. And it's been dismissed by so many generations of scholars because they thought, well, why, why would Aristoxenus say, Aristoxenus say such a thing? It's, it's malicious and mean. No reason to be considered so because actually taking an older lover as a boy in those days was fine if you were an elite young man. That's what they did. 
and they associated with older men. It didn't have to be a sexual relationship, but in this case, Aristoxenus says it was. It was one in which you had uh, the advantage of associating with a, an older, more experienced, uh, well-connected individual in that Greek world. And if that was the case, I thought the more important than saying anything about Socrates' sexuality, which clearly was bisexual from all the evidence we have from Plato, uh, more important than that was an indication of his status, yet again. You don't, as it were, become known as the lover of an important philosopher in ancient Athens if you're not an elite youth. It's mm -hmm. not like these people are going around picking up peasant boys. They are trying to encourage and educate members of a high circle. And that's what was happening to Socrates, age 17. It makes sense, right? Uh, if, if you're seeking out a mentorship with someone of such a high status and they're so well connected, they can connect you with other people. You can learn a lot from them. Eventually, you would get to a point of status where you would take on your own uh, mentees, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I could see that. That, that makes And that's sense. what happened in ancient Athens. I mean, I think mentor and mentee is exactly right. Mm -hmm. Because what then happens is Socrates famously mentors a younger um, aristocrat called Alcibiades. And he says he loves him more than any other man. But his, his main aim in associating with Alcibiades is to help him, to educate him, to, as he says, to, to encourage the growth of his soul, mm. his psyche, his psyche. And uh, there's this beautiful dialogue of Plato's, a symposium, in which Alcibiades tells the story about how when he was a young boy, he was 19, and he went on campaign because he was a soldier as well, and Socrates, and he shared a tent, and Socrates then, as I say, in his 30s, um, and he said, you know, I wanted to seduce him but you know this older and presumably not as attractive man Alcibiades famously beautiful young boy he said I, you know and I tried to seduce him I hugged him under the sheet and this sort of thing and he just wouldn't he wasn't interested and he said he was only interested in myself and this has been taken by scholars uh, as an indication that Socrates had no interest in young men he was only interested in their souls but actually there are other dialogues in which Socrates tells us that he's burning with desire for some young man. And if he says he loved Alcibiades more than anyone else. And an ancient source said, if um, he had loved Alcibiades and had sex with him, it wouldn't be at all a surprise. If he'd loved him and not had sex with him, well, more fool him. <laughs> and how was love and in particular these relationships with um so pretty much these relationships with these mentees how were they formative in his thinking well the association with Archelaus, who was a philosopher would have introduced him to styles of argumentation mm -hmm. uh, so what we know of Archelaus's philosophy is it's it's more about physical the physical world and about the idea of whether everything can last forever or whether it there's a beginning of things, you know, those sorts of philosophical questions, metaphysical questions. But of course, it would have introduced Socrates to a kind of philosophical vocabulary and a style of argumentation and debate that was going on in these elite intellectual circles. So that's the first thing. That would have got him interested in, in the idea of discussion and debate leading to the possibility of discovering truth. What we know from Plato's description of Socrates' early life is that he, Socrates found himself dissatisfied 
with the kind of answers that were being given by these philosophers, in particular, a man called Anaxagoras, who was the um, so-called teacher of Archelaus, who was Socrates' own teacher, and also a very big presence in Athens at the time. Socrates undoubtedly would have heard him. And he said when he heard that Anaxagoras had written a book in which he said that everything was, um, was guided by mind, he said, I got terribly excited. I went out and bought the book. <clears throat> And I bought it for, you know, it costs a drachman. That's, you know, like equivalent of $300. Oh. It's a day's wage for a skilled man. So again, Socrates had money to go out and buy the book. And he says, and I read it with great eagerness, but I found it was so disappointing because where I thought Anaxagoras was going to explain how mind directed the world so that everything turned out right and, and good, he just said it's just, it was a mechanical principle in which you know, the world had been started off by some mind and then it went into uh, some kind of mechanical cont continuity. So what Socrates was looking for was an answer to say, why are things the way they are? And, you know, how should we act to make sure that we're doing the right thing? But Anaxagoras' mind was not that at all. So, you know, you're getting glimpses of all these things about how he's associating with these figures either in person or through their ideas from a very young age. And so I was inclined to think, well, all right, so he developed his own philosophy because something in his personal life might have made him feel dissatisfied with the kind of intellectual academic pursuits that he felt that these philosophers were um, promoting. And um, I wondered what that might be. There are several candidates, one of which is that he was obviously a very odd young man. He was a very odd old man, but he was odd as a young man because he says from an early age he heard voices. Uh -huh. And he had a voice which he called his divine voice. Um, and he said that was like something that warned me not to do something. It warned me not to go into politics, for instance. He said, if I'd gone into politics as a young man, then I'd surely have been killed. Another indication that he was from an elite because who else thinks about going into politics as a young man and then turns it down. So there he is going, thinking, well, I'm not gonna do that. Um, and the other thing that uh, we learn about him was that he went with one of his followers. So he developed a group of followers, people who listened to him talking and wanted to learn from him. He went with one of these to Delphi, which is where they had the Oracle of Apollo and the Oracle was asked by his follower, who must have thought Socrates is just the most brilliant man in the world. Is he the most brilliant man in the world? And the oracle said, yes, he is. And Socrates thought, what? <laughs> what does this mean? You know, I don't know anything. And they thought, ding, that's why. Because I know <laughs> I don't know anything. <laughs> Whereas all these people who go around saying they're so brilliant because they know how to behave and how to act, what the good life is and how you should be, they don't know anything, but they don't know it. <laughs> Whereas at least I do know it. And what I know is that in, because I don't know it for certain, I'm going to spend the left, left, rest of my life trying to find out. And that's what philosophy means. And actually, we don't know the word philosophy really un until this time. And what it means is love of wisdom. And if you love something, you are desirous of obtaining it. So philosophy is not actually having wisdom. It's being desirous of wanting to be wise. And that's what Socrates said philosophy was. It was about pursuing the goal that you might never actually reach in this life because you can strip away all the falsehoods to show 
you say, this is what justice is, well, I'll, I'll give you a counterexample. Okay, it's not that. Is it this? No, I'll give you a counterexample. But then when are you going to get to the thing itself? Maybe you never will. Mm -hmm. So he said that, that the purpose of life is to keep questioning your moral assumptions in order to get closer to what is the case. Right. And that's essentially what the Socratic method is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Socratic method, as we use it in, you know, today in academia or business or whatever, is saying, look, here's a position, you know, critique that position in order to get to a better position, then you can cr critique that one and keep going. So right. it's this constant toing and froing of, um, of, of argument and criticism in order to achieve a better understanding of something. Wow. And so that really reminds me, um, so we had Emmy Van Dersen on about, I think it was in September, who's a prominent existential therapist. And so in our field in psychotherapy, we pretty much, um, and a lot of us psychoanalysts in particular, but just psychotherapists in general, we fall into the trap of thinking that we know a lot about what's going on in a person's mind without actually fully knowing him. Obviously, we can't know both human being fully, but I mean, let me just kind of rephrase, deeply knowing the person. So, um, so sometimes we kind of put people into these boxes, into these categories and we think, oh, well, I know why this person is going through this, or I know what this person's issues are. And so with Emmy, we had this great discussion about how, well, you know, with existential therapy, there are no sort of categories and we try our best not to put people in different boxes because at the end of the day, we really can't say for certain what's going on with them. And so why I love that so much and why obviously philosophy and psychotherapy are deeply, I think, intertwine and will be forever so until literally the end of time is because for us we're always trying to get at the truth with people and with the other with the client sort of on the other side we're trying to get to the truth of what's going on with them or what their thoughts are what their beliefs are what their lives were and as we're sort of constructing we always have in the back of our minds the potential and the ability and the desire to reconstruct and so sometimes what happens with therapy i think it's the same thing that happens with philosophy is and just broadly speaking with academia in general it's very easy to get trapped in your thinking and to think, well, I'm right, right, because of all of these different reasons. And obviously, then you have somebody else who kind of um, maybe, let's say, if le they're not trying to be aggressive, if they're just sort of trying to put forth another argument, you kind of resist it. And you sort of say to yourself, oh, now I have to kind of rebut, I have to debunk it. And I have to kind of prove myself, or I have to prove my argument on the other end, rather than kind of try a, a Hegelian kind of synthesis of our two ideas. Mm -hmm. And so good therapy, according to Emmy, and just kind of existential philosophy therapy broadly, is essentially the idea that you're not going to ever be certain of anything and you can come up with your different and various hypotheses which is wonderful but if you're ever married to them you're going to be stuck there and that's a difficult position though because of course you have to live with provisionality yeah. Yeah. and that's something i think that socratic philosophy does make us aware of and uh, particularly ironic that uh, the reason we know all about it is because of the writings of plato and it feels as if plato couldn't stick with that all his life because towards the later part of the platonic dialogues he's still putting ideas in the mouth of socrates but they start to become much more positive they start to say look this is the case that there are for example there is a world of, of forms uh, which uh, the form of beauty uh, you know of which beautiful things partake on this world and that then becomes a kind of positive doctrine whereas all the early dialogues end with the greek word is aporia which is uncertainty you know, okay, we're looking at what is what is excellence and ended up saying, well, we don't really know. Well, maybe, you know, in the end, it's just something, it's a gift from God. That's the, the meno, for example. Um, or, um, you, you know, he might ask questions about knowledge or love. I mean, love famously in, in Plato's Symposium 
is something where a positive doctrine is presented, but not by Socrates himself. He says, look, I'll, I'll give you a doctrine of love, but I heard it from a woman. I heard it from mm. a very clever woman called Diotima. And, um, and, and then he gives the doctrine and, you know, it's not certain that he espouses exactly the doctrine, which is that love starts um, with physical attraction and then it expands so that you, you're actually attracted to the beauty that is in the thing that you are attracted to. And then you're attracted eventually to the idea of beauty itself. So this ladder of love in the symposium. But um, as I say, that is presented. And then the, the biggest part of the dialogue is the end of it when Alcibiades, this mentee, rushes in to the party and he says, well, I'll tell you what love is. And he kind of describes Socrates and how Socrates refused to have sex with him. And Socrates was this brave soldier who saved his life in battle. And so you think, well, at the end of this, are we supposed to believe the doctrine, this rather fancy doctrine of love ascending the ladder to something that is defined as procreation in the beautiful, mm -hmm. which is Diotima's doctrine, or are we supposed to think, no, it's about the, the personal relations and, and wanting to help someone else to, uh, to, to develop their soul in the way that Alcibiades claims Socrates wanted for him. So which is it? <laughs> so we're again left with, you know, we don't know exactly what even Plato is telling us love is meant to be, let alone what Socrates is telling us what love is meant to be. But it was actually that dialogue that switched me on to another part of my research about Socrates' early life. Because he says, you know, I learned about love. He says, this is someone who says, the one thing I know is I know nothing. But in the symposium, he says, but I do know about love. I mean, it's like, you know, it's not a small thing to know about. What I do know about, he says, is love, because I was taught it by this very clever woman, Diotima. Diotima always assumed to be a fiction. Um, because we know nothing else about this clever woman. But Socrates introduces her with a specific phrase, it says she managed to postpone the plague at Athens, very topical of course now, the plague at Athens has been written about 430 to 29 BC because of all the symptoms and all the deaths and you know of, of frontline carers for example and the morale uh, and, and the problems with, with law and order, things that you know we know about the ancient plague that can map onto today's COVID. But uh, I think that uh, what's interesting is that he introduces her as someone who postponed the plague of Athens by 10 years. And nobody asked, well, what happened 10 years earlier? And when I asked that question, I realized immediately that we know who this woman is, that actually that Diotima is a cover for Aspasia, who was the wife or consort of the leading citizen of Athens, Pericles, famously clever in her time, and someone who Socrates must have interacted with. And so there are reasons, I think, why Plato didn't want to say, I learned this doctrine of love from Aspasia. But he makes Socrates say, I learned it from Diotima. But even the name Diotima is, is a thinly guided clue because in Greek it means honored by Zeus, Zeus the chief of the gods. And that was the nickname that was used of Pericles. And Pericles famously honored Aspasia. So honored by Zeus means the woman honored by Pericles. No, very interesting. And then, so when we're talking about Socrates being in love, right? What does that look like? What are his relationships like? So in um, the symposium, we get a picture of Socrates and Alcibiades uh, being intimately friendly with each other. I mean, they're people who 
know each other really well. Um, so Alcibiades actually tells his audience in this party, the symposium, none of you really knows Socrates, but I'll, I'll tell you what he's really like. And he goes on to say he was a brave, he was a decent, he was a strong man. He's, he, he, he was a man of extreme friendship who, who saved his young friend's life in battle and refused to take the credit. A modest man, essentially. Wow. So all those things come across uh, in the relationship with the young man. Um, we don't know about his relationships with women, except that later sources say, of course, he was a very lusty man. In fact, there's a word used for him, which means essentially he's a nymphomaniac when he was a younger man. Um, and um, that- Which is not abnormal. <laughs> you know, he was, a, he was a normal young Athenian man. Yeah. And uh, everything he, he says he is made to say by Plato suggests he has an eye for the women, he has an eye for the boys, he has an eye for beauty. He, you know, he talks about being inflamed with lust at the sight of a bare chest. Mm -hmm. This is in Plato's Calm Up Comedies. And that's the bare chest of a boy as it happens. You know, he says his, 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 his chiton, his, his cloak slipped for a moment. And I saw his bare chest and I was, I was aflame, inflamed with lust. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is Socrates <laughs> talking about love. And so love and lust, of course, things which are uh, both come under the Greek term eros, which is the god of love, eros, and also from which we get the word erotic. And that is the focus of the discussion in Plato's Symposium, in which we learn that there are all kinds of different ways in which people love. There's, there's sexual love, there's um, friendship, there's saving your friend's life, you know, all those other things. And then these things all seem to be shown in Socrates' own person at the end of the dialogue when Alcibiades describes him. So, you know, what was he like? He was an intense lover. And my reconstruction of the history of his early life suggests that Aspasia would have come into his life because she was an immigrant from Ionia, Asia Minor, modern Turkey, so Greece across the Aegean a Greek city of Miletus. She came from there to Athens when she was about 20. She would have been the same age as Socrates and she would have, because she had relatives in that same Periclean uh, uh, milia, she would have met him in that milia. And uh, so he was you know, known to Pericles, she was known to Pericles, they would have met. At the age of 25, she got married to Pericles, who was twice her age. You got married to this leading, influential, important man. So what happened in those five years when she and Socrates were both associating in the same circles, but before she decided that she would go with the man who was apparently infatuated with this beautiful, clever woman? Mm -hmm. Answer is, I think they were in love. When I say I think, there's an ancient source, a, a very uh, knowledgeable man called Clearchus, who was a pupil of Aristotle, also philosophically based, who we have a fragment of which just says, before she was with Pericles, she was with Socrates. Wow. And the term she was with is not specific, but whatever she was with, with Pericles, before that she was with, with Socrates. And so I think we have grounds to say that there e even is authoritative ancient evidence that Socrates and Aspasia were together. And mm. if we can then tie that up with the doctrine of love given to Socrates in the symposium by this character Diotima, 
then we have a very potentially very strong philosophical influence on his thinking. Mm, okay. Right. And so what was his conception of love from her? So what he says is love is something higher. Mm-hmm. So it's a scale. Love, of course, there is such a thing as physical love, sexual love, sexual attraction. But once you've got over that, and, you, and you know, she says you can graduate from one lover to many lovers, mm-hmm. uh, because actually what you're looking for is something beyond the physical. And so she says that in the end, it's about recognizing beauty in the objects of love and being creative in response to that. So if you think about it in physical terms, it means you've recognized beauty, you want to possess that beauty, um, and you, have, you make love and you have children, if it's a heterosexual relationship. Actually, the symposium is set up within a homosexual a coterie. So we're talking about men saying, oh, well, I see what's lovable or attractive in the other man. And obviously what you want to do then is be creative in relation, in response to that. How are you going to do that? With ideas, with books, you know, the word in Greek logos means both an idea and a writing and a word. So you create logoi, according to Plato, in relation to something that is beautiful and that draws your mind out creatively. And that in the end is what love is. So it is a relationship. I mean, you know, going back to your psychological ideas, it is an object relationship. I mean, the object might be a real person or it might be an object in your mind but it's in relation to that object. And that object is a loving object, but also one that draws you upwards, according to the doctrine in mm-hmm. the symposium. Uh, so love in the end is something that essentially improves you. It's about psychological growth. And a lover is someone who encourages psychological growth in the beloved, as is shown very specifically by Socrates' relationship with Alcibiades. Yeah, and it kind of seems like from a psychological and developmental perspective, what we're saying is, and I hope my interpretation is correct, that, um, so I'm, so is it that Socrates was saying that essentially when we're talking about love, it can't ever be physical, or is it that we're saying that it needs to develop further on into something deeper and more spiritual? The latter. So okay. what he's saying is it must be physical. I mean, you, this is how it begins, with right. physical attraction. You know, you, and, and also, you know, everything we know about Socrates is that he was a very physical lover. Right. He never said, I'm going to be an ascetic. You know, he's married to Xantippe. Most people only know that Xantippe was his wife or she was probably his mistress, but he would have met her in his 50s because she had a baby when he was in jail, age 70. Right, wow. So, you know, so she can't have been that old, but even if she was 30, which is quite old for a woman in those days to have a baby, then he, and let's say he met her 10 years earlier, he would have been 60 when he met her. Right. So even in his late age, he has a child from this woman, Plato tells us he had his three children from her, but there are reasons why Plato probably suppresses the fact that the two children were from an earlier marriage to an aristocratic woman, probably much earlier marriage uh, to a woman called Myrto. Aristotle, Plato's pupil, tells us that. He corrects Plato. And he wouldn't have corrected him on such a trivial issue if he didn't know better. You know, it's as if say, Plato says he married Xantippe and had three kids. Well, actually, the two kids were from his earlier wife, two older ones. So... Socrates, throughout his life, having marriages, affairs, no doubt, had mistresses as a young boy, because we were told that by a later source, and also in love with boys, as he very clearly is in several of Plato's dialogues. Right. The Symposium, the Lysis, the Carmides, he's, he's in love with you know, lo- young boys, or he's, he's infatuated by them. So, yes, you know, of course, it's a, a developmental thing. Of course, love 
requires some recognition of physical attraction. But you have to, in a typically Socratic way, ask yourself, what's actually going on here? Is it actually the body? Well, then how come I like other bodies too? Well, if I like other bodies, is it just bodies I like? Maybe it's something that is common to all these bodies. And what is common to them? Beauty. Okay, I want to get that beauty and I want to, to possess it. Okay, so that's what love is, possessing beauty. But actually, you want to keep possessing it. You don't want to possess it for one minute and then drop it. So you want to possess it forever. This is, mm. this is how Diotima describes it. And to possess it forever, well, that has to be what love is. It's a desire to possess something that is beautiful forever, but to procreate in relation to it so that you become something that lasts forever through that procreation, whether it's of your ideas or a physical offspring. Right. That's, that's the doctrine she presents, that's the doctrine Socrates presents. And it, it's a, it is a leading from, a, as it were, you might say low level up to a higher level. We talk about platonic love, don't we? That's what mm -hmm. it means. It's, it's love which doesn't involve the physical. Mm -hmm. Right. And what's so interesting about that and what I love about it is that um, so a lot of a lot of people tend to struggle with the idea of physical love because, um, well, I'm sorry, not physical, love, physical attraction. So sometimes people think of it. And I mean, there was a point in my life where I thought the same way, where it's as though if you like somebody who's, let's say, physically appealing, you know, for the most part to most people, mm -hmm. you kind of feel guilty about it. And there's some part of you that asks, oh, well, am I shallow or am I being too vain? And then maybe somebody in your family, like, you know, a mom, because my mom has said something like this to me before, where she said, oh, you can't go after looks right it looks is like it's the worst it's like that's an illusion and it's a trap and then so kind of in black and white thinking we think like oh i should either sort of aspire to you know let's say be in a relationship with somebody just for the physical appearance or the other side that says no 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 oh my god i must be like evil or i must be sort of vain or shallow so i can't do that so i, I sort of i need to be at the other extreme mm -hmm. and so what i love about socratic sort of i guess not only thinking but his life is that what it epitomizes is the fact that look for the most part we're never going to get rid of our biological attractions it's never going to happen and so the sort of spiritual ideal that we aspire to it's it's unrealistic and so to feel guilty about it doesn't make any sense so what i think we should be teaching our kids and i hope my mom is listening to this is that essentially it's okay to start off with physical attraction but if it doesn't get anywhere deeper and if you're dating someone who's purely shallow and they can't help you grow and they don't want you to really help them grow and they sort of want to remain in that state of arrested development then it's best to move on mm -hmm. but to get rid of physical attraction attraction altogether. Even Socrates, who's literally the epitome of, it seems like, of a human being and of a thinker. I mean, he even tells you that that's not possible. You can't just shut that off. Absolutely. I think that the idea that Socrates was just a sort of brain on a stick is just complete rubbish. Right. And, you know, I, I'm sure some people will have taken offense at what I've tried to do, which was to try and restore to Socrates his real humanity from sources, from ancient uh, descriptions, which are there, but which later, and you know, obviously post-Christian sources in particular, if you think about it, Christianity is, is responsible for trying to create the idea of an ascetic saint. And so the idea of Socrates as this kind of secular saint has arisen, someone who lived for the mind and for, for morality. But actually he was a human being, he would have been the first to insist on his humanity. One of the other points that I often make is that although um, we don't know whether he ever killed a man, he fought in a lot of battles. He may well have killed others and he didn't stop fighting. So he fought, I think, from the age of 20, although we're told from the age of you know, 37. So I think, as I say, he was a hot plate much earlier, up until the age of 47, 48. We know he was still fighting. And you had to be able to be called up. You had to be 
uh, in a sense, an enthusiastic Athenian patriot to be doing that kind of thing. And he did it all his life. Yeah. So, you know, he wasn't a pacifist. He wasn't a conscientious objector. We can, we can project onto him all sorts of ideas of what a good person should be, but he lived a full human life. And he was still a thinker and a seeker. And no doubt he would have asked questions about whether it's right to fight for your country, for your city in his case, uh, even if it means killing someone whom you don't know or who might be innocent. He would have asked all those questions, but unfortunately we don't have a record of those. So he, he'll, you know, there's a whole dialogue about courage, for example, which is essentially, you know, if you feel fear and still do something, that's when you're courageous, rather than if you have no fear. Obviously, you can't then call someone courageous because <laughs> they're, a, they're a zombie. Um, so we know he must have been involved in such very difficult situations where he felt fear and yet had to go forward. Right. So this is a man who feels fear, even though he's a great and effective soldier. This is a man who feels physical attraction, even though he believes in the importance of intellectual and emotional growth, rather than simply fulfilling your or gratifying your desires. No, he is a full human being. And that's what I wanted to bring home when I wrote my book on Socrates, because I thought people don't have that image of him at all. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And I guess uh, just to touch on this a bit, uh, what were his political views like, or his uh, political philosophy, rather? Well, that's, I mean, that is a fascinating question, because on the one hand, there's a kind of philosophical approach to what politics should be like, which we get in Plato's Republic. Uh, in that, um, Plato has Socrates trying to sketch what an ideal city would be like. So that's what the Republic is, the ideal city, a kind of utopia, where things were arranged in such a way as they should be. And it becomes a very hierarchical thing because the basic principle is that everyone should do what they're best at. So slaves should be slaving away because that's what they're good at. And very clever people should be doing important things uh, intellectually and soldiers should be fighting. And, you know, so people say, oh gosh, you know, this is, this is a strange blueprint for a society which takes the categories that existed in ancient Athens, but it reshapes them. Mm -hmm. It reshapes them in such a way that um, you know, the, the guardians of the city are the most important, that they're the soldiers, they're the ones who uh, guard it, but others are fulfilling their own function at various different levels. Um, so that's his kind of sketch of the ideal city, but the purpose of doing that in the Republic it says he can say this is how the soul should be organized because what he starts off with is the question what is justice and justice is something that we should have inside us it's more like honesty the greek word how are we to understand being just and honest individuals he says well i'll tell you what i'll take a big picture and and he takes a picture of the state and says well it should be organized in such a way that every bit is doing its own thing and then he he brings it back down to the soul and he says, and that's what makes a just soul. There are three bits in the soul. The most important, the bit that should be leading is intelligence. The, there's the spirited bit, which drives you on to do good things. And then the desirous bit, which, which pulls you down and tries to get you to do things which you, know, you should try and avoid. And this three tripartite soul should be led. He's not saying those other things can't exist. They have to exist. We still have desire. We still have spirit. We have to have them but we need to be led by reason. 
So that is his, his conclusion at the end of the Republic, taking this big picture of the city with everything doing it, the right thing in its right place and, and then reducing it to the idea of the soul being harmonious. And um, so that's his political philosophy in that respect. I mean, his relations to the politics of Athens is a different question. And, and he was pro almost certainly, I'm sure, executed because he was associated with the elite upper classes who were the conservatives, as opposed to the radical Democrats. And there was a bit of a ding dong in, in the 30 years during the Peloponnesian War, in, you know, which we find at the end of the century, Athens fighting Sparta. And the elite aristocrats, they didn't want that war to continue because they were the ones who were, being, who were suffering most, their lands were being invaded and ruined and so on. So they were trying to stop the democracy, which is basically the common people who voted on everything, stop them from voting constantly to keep the war going. Oh, because wow. the common people thought this was good for us. Now, Socrates, of course, was a teacher of elites. So after the war was over and Athens lost it in 404, there was an amnesty because the Athenians said, look, we've got to bring back these elites and the common people and try and restore our democracy. And they did amazingly in 403 BC. But there were still people who really resented the fact that every time that the uh, oligarchs, as they were called, the elites, asserted themselves, they killed hundreds and possibly thousands of their democratic um, uh, opponents. And so there were these people who said, all these oligarchs, they got off scot-free because of this amnesty. What about this guy who was teaching Alcibiades and teaching Critias, all those elites who were part of these coups which tried to overthrow our democracy? Let's get him. But we can't say it's because he was um, an oligarch or a supporter of subversion of democracy. We have to say it's because he was irreligious and because he corrupted young men, whatever that means. It sounds like a Jeffrey Epstein thing. You know, mm -hmm. as far as they were concerned, it was a slightly immoral uh, innuendo, but actually corrupting young men is corrupting young men like Alcibiades, who then were political foes of democracy. And that's why Socrates was put on trial and eventually put to death. And so, um, and uh, I guess one of our final questions is going to be, so in terms of love, right, obviously, you know, kind of in modern times, we have this sort of ideal conception of what love is supposed to be, you know, from film, television, romance, novels, etc. So mm. what do you think sort of Socrates and some of the other ancient Greeks, particularly the philosophers of the time, what do you think that they would have thought if they would have had any particular thoughts about our sort of persistence in idealizing love and romantic love in particular? I think that they would have assumed that human nature hasn't changed that much mm -hmm. and that romantic love as we see it in films and so on uh, is almost always based on physical attraction which as we have seen is something that Socrates would have completely accepted but what you get is a different social context so in ancient Athens if you were physically attracted to a young woman, it, she'd have to be a prostitute because if she were a married woman, she'd have been married in her early teens. That's what they did. They married them off to make sure that they were virgins. And then they were stuck in the home looking after things like the knitting and the sewing and the, the housework. And that was what a typical Athenian wife did. And the men would then go off and sow their oats with either other women or men. Um, so the idea that you could be physically attracted to a woman and then grow spiritually 
with that person was culturally out of the question. As far as we can see, it didn't really exist with anyone except Aspasia. Mm -hmm. Pericles not only fancied her, he admired her intellect. Very unusual. And, you know, it's made a huge deal of by the ancient sources because it's so exceptional. Whereas, of course, with a young man, it was possible both to fancy them and to go on and have an intellectual and emotional deeper relationship with them. So that's why that sort of homoerotic milieu tended to emerge uh, more strongly in the ancient world. I mean, it was actually very much part of it, but it was really for those reasons. It was for the you know, male chauvinist reasons of, if you're gonna marry, it's about inheritance and make sure the girl's a virgin, therefore you marry young, and, and she's not gonna be educated. That was the other thing. They were not educated on the whole. So what would they have thought? They'd have thought, well, at least we balance that out, they might have thought. Mm -hmm. At least now we can have relationships with both men and women, and we can accept that women have intellects in a way that, uh, that men might as well. Wow. So, I mean, what we're pretty much saying then is that patriarchy sort of precluded them any form of romantic or heterosexual romantic love. It doesn't seem like, well, outside of just obviously lust and physical attraction. Yeah, largely the case in ancient Greece. Yeah. Um, well, that sounds horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness it, it, it's, things have moved on. I mean, I, I would say it differed in ancient Rome. Mm -hmm. By the time you got to Rome, women were much freer and they could own property and businesses and some of them became, you know, beloved not only for their bodies, but for their minds. Yeah. And I think of the poet Catullus here who, you know, fell in love with this young woman and just thought she was the most brilliant and clever girl. And then she dumped him and he wrote this wonderful love poetry saying, you know, I, I, I'd like it to be over, but I can't stop thinking about you, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and that also kind of speaks to existential freedom, because if we think about it, I mean, for the most part, I guess, I'm going to say this, I don't want to generalize, but I mean, I think this is true for most of us, if not all of us. I think we always think of it as, or we want a form of love where we feel safe, where we feel as though in some way we're in control, right? That we know that sort of we, we have a like one up on our partner and that it's very unlikely that they're going to leave us. And so I can see how in ancient Greece, obviously, if they, this is what they were doing. And then their conception, it was, oh, well, I mean, if we sort of, you know, prevent them from being educated, obviously, they're not going to go anywhere. But then that precludes love. So it's like love, this thing yeah. that entails risk, especially romantic love, which you actually, you need risk, right? Not only do you mm. need respect for the other person, and especially yeah. respect for their mind, you also need the risk of them being able to leave you. And so once you get rid of that, that's, I don't know what that even looks like anymore. That's just pure subjugation. Yeah, exactly. Right. Wow, man. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> All right. Alan, any final questions for Armand before we go? Uh, yes, Armand, uh, if, if we wanted to follow your work, uh, how can we follow you? I'm, I've actually got a, a website. Um, I'm on dangor.com. Mm -hmm. And I put stuff up there. Um, uh, someone said to me, you should write a blog. So I started, I put up a, a, an article. And then a few months later, I put up another one. And someone said, that's not a blog. I said, no, it's a clog. <laughs> so this is my term. It's something that stumbles like a clog. It's not a blog. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a backlog of things that I think about and then put up. But, you know, but I do put up a, a list of things that I'm working on at any particular time. Uh, I talk about some of my um, other research projects. One was the rediscovery of the sound of ancient Greek music. And there's a great video, actually, which I link to from my 
from my website, which uh, is called Rediscovering Greek Music, Ancient Greek Music, and uh, it's, seen, it's been viewed by over 600,000 people. So Amazing. I'm very happy that the world has got to know that some of these things that we scholars, you know, work to research on can also be of, of, of wide public interest. Yeah. And so Armand, the final question would be, if there's one thing that you wanted the world or one thing that you thought that the world absolutely needed to know about Socrates, what would that be? That he was a real human being with all the foibles and human sides that we would expect. Yeah, brilliant. And so just a, one quick add on is that because we focus on perfectionism a lot in the show. So if Socrates wasn't perfect and couldn't be perfect, the rest of us don't stand a chance either. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. That was great. That was fun. Yeah. That was really, really fun. Well, right. If, uh, if you guys want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. Yeah. And you can also find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And you can find us under, um, what is the top left, I think? Top left section under the STM Podcast section. Thank you guys so much for watching. Look forward to next week's episode. We have Suleiman Jenkins, Jenkins on. Coming we have to talk on. about Life is Raw, Napoleon's biography. <laughs> Thanks again. See you guys next time.